Hello and welcome to Connect Points podcast and sermon archives. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please go online to our website at connectpointupc.com or follow us on our Facebook page. Thank you very much and I hope you enjoy this week's message. God bless. Man, it's such a high, it's such an honor and such a magnificent blessing to be a part of the family of God. You want to be a part of the family of God, the body of Christ. The Bible tells us that we're all connected, that he's, it's his design that we are all connected and that he makes each one of us valuable in his kingdom and in his family. And we very much see each other as family. That is the, the driving force behind when we call each other, you know, brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. It's not just some weird thing that somebody came up with at some point. We like the idea of being family and speaking. Amen. We believe in it, the family of God, the connection. And so we, we like that and we honor, we honor family. In the family of God, we're just so thankful that everyone is here today to worship with us. The Spirit of the Lord is indeed in this house. I believe God did some miracles just now. Amen. John 19, we are continuing in our little mini-series here leading up to Easter next week. John the 19th chapter, and we look at verses 38 through 42. If you're there, say, I'm there. Amen. Amen. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. And he came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. Last week, we talked about the crucifixion and the death, the reality of that. And this week, we're going to talk a little bit about this burial of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Why don't you put your Bibles down, find two or three people, give them a high five, tell them you love them, you're glad to see them. Amen, amen, amen. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus 
come suddenly as it may seem onto the scene. They are, they are there. The crucifixion has taken place as we spoke about last week and went into detail of, and if you're interested in that, you can listen to last week's sermon. Now he is dead and his body there hangs upon the cross. Who are these men? Why are they involved in this most important of events? Why are they the ones that are connected so strongly to this moment on the cross and the body of Christ? The Bible tells us that Joseph of Arimathea is a disciple of Jesus, but he is not one that we know much about. Is something of an anomaly. He was a member of what was called the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme Jewish legislative and judicial court of the day. In the New Testament, the Sanhedrin is best known for their part in the series of mock trials and that resulted in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The Sanhedrin is best known for the part that they played in killing Jesus. They began with an informal examination of Jesus before Annas and, and then acting as high priest in John 18. Then they followed by a formal session before the entire Sanhedrin and Matthew in 26. They were supposed to be men of the law. They were positioned as men of some uh, spiritual authority and some law understanding, but they failed to uphold the law and protect the the life of an innocent Jesus because simply they did not care much for him. But how did Joseph of Arimathea feel about it? In Mark, the 15th chapter, in the 43rd verse, it tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. In Luke, the 23rd chapter, it tells us, and behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. The Bible clearly tells us that though he was a, a member of the Sanhedrin and even a part of the same crowd that was pushing so hard to crucify Christ, but he indeed himself was a disciple of Christ and he did not agree with what they were trying to accomplish. So we find that amongst them that hated Christ, Jesus has a disciple. I love that. Oh, hallelujah. Uh, amongst a group of people that were so uh, bent on, on, on killing Christ that they manipulated and, and worked and, and went against their own laws and their own stance, a bunch, a, bunch, a bunch of people that felt that way and would stoop to that level and act that sinfully and unrighteously amongst them, yet there was a man who was a disciple of Jesus Christ. There was a voice that was saying, this is not the right thing that we're supposed to 
to do. There was someone that the Bible says uh, was looking for the kingdom of God. Let me just take five seconds uh, to remind you today that though it may look really dark and bleak um, in different levels of our society and culture today, God's got people everywhere. You may not know about them. Uh, you may have never heard about them. Uh, you may never see them. Uh, but God's got people everywhere. And you can trust that God is speaking. You can trust that God is speaking. So we find this man, Joseph of Arimathea, is a wealthy and a powerful man. And he is a man of great authority. And he has a lot of influence. But even he cannot keep the crucifixion from happening. And he was facing a trial, perhaps, of his own faith in the process. Because now Jesus is clearly dead. We discussed that last week at length. He is dead. It makes more sense that Pilate releases the body of Christ to Joseph of Arimathea. It was a man that Pilate would have known well, a man that he would have respected, uh, maybe even a man that he owed, a man that had some political clout and Joseph doesn't go in, though. He doesn't go in like that. He doesn't go in as a man that uh, can manipulate Pilate. He doesn't go in as a man that's trying to use his earthly authority. The Bible simply says that he begs Pilate for the body of Christ. He knows that it needs to be done right, handled right, considered and he doesn't want anyone else to get their hands on Jesus. And so he begs Pilate for the body of Christ. He knows that the Sabbath is upon them and that by law no man can dig a grave at this point in the Sabbath. And he has a solution that nobody else can offer. He himself has an unused tomb less than 200 feet away. It's for his family and for himself someday. It was what the wealthy would have had. They would have had tombs that were of significance, that were carved into the rock. The body of Christ cannot be exposed and left uh, unprepared for burial. And they don't have time to dig uh, amen, a grave. They don't have access. Uh, nobody that is connected to Christ has any access to a tomb. No family there. The di disciples have kind of faded in the darkness and there was nothing that that anyone can do except for Joseph of Arimathea. He can do something about it. And John 19, and after the Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he would take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave, and he came therefore. And he took the body of Jesus, and there came also Nicodemus, which at first came to Jesus by night. This is talking about the time that Jesus and Nicodemus first met. And brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, and we read about it, a hundred pound weight. They took the body. They did. They took the body. They wound it in linen clothes with the spices in the manner, as the manners of the Jews did bury. And there, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in that garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. It was new. It had never been used Nicodemus is a name mentioned other times in Scripture. So we have Joseph of Arimathea. Now we have the second man. His name is Nicodemus. Everybody say Nicodemus. His name is Nicodemus, and here he is. And he is connected to Christ by their conversation, a conversation about being born again. Jesus and him have a conversation by night in John chapter 3 and verse 1. And there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, now that's amazing. It's amazing because Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Pharisees were very active against Christ. 
Pharisees were always there, kind of seemingly in the room, always kind of hanging around like jackals looking for some sort of exposure to attack Christ. They tried to manipulate situations to, to kind of get Christ to fall into certain traps, and they were always kind of working against what he was doing behind the scenes. And yet here, amazingly, once again, we see that there is a Pharisee, and his name is Nicodemus, but he believes in Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. The Pharisees shouldn't have been the way they were, having known the scriptures, but they manipulated what they knew and they worked against Jesus. Most of the time, the Pharisees were at odds with the Sadducees, another group of people that you see routinely working against Jesus, another Jewish sect. But the two of them actually joined forces, as it were, to conspire against Jesus. They voted together in that Sanhedrin that we spoke of earlier to demand his death and then saw that the Romans would carry it out on their behalf. And neither group could believe. They just could not believe in a Messiah who would sacrifice himself for the sins of the world they just couldn't believe it they just couldn't accept that the messiah the one that they had studied about and learned about and memorized the scripture about the one that they taught about in their synagogues the one that they spoke about and they had dedicated them li their lives to they just could not wrap their minds around that this messiah who they thought was going to conquer the world and give them all kinds of power and authority would literally come and let himself die on a cross and let himself be mocked and ridiculed and though they couldn't believe it they found themselves as the ones that were doing it because they couldn't believe it they actually became the ones doing it and yet Nicodemus is them he's one of them but he's not one of them and he handles the body of Christ for burial his hands are some of the first hands to touch the body of Christ like Joseph of Arimathea, he wasn't just another member of the Pharisees. He wasn't just another person who had a say with the Sanhedrin. He was different. In John chapter 3, 1 through 2, it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles that you do except God be with him. He came to him by night, of course. He was still in that stage. He was still in that stage where uh, I go to church every Sunday, but I don't talk about it at work. <laughs> uh, I've been going to this church for a while now, but my family still doesn't know. I got baptized last week, but I didn't put it on social media. He was still in that stage, and that's fine. It's all right. It's part of the process. It's part of the process. But understand. And you don't have to put your baptisms on social media. <laughs> Just before we move on, let's clarify that. You're not part of the advertising arm of the church. You do whatever you want to do with it. But here he was. 
He had come to Jesus and they had had a conversation by night and he had confessed in that moment that I know that you're more than just a man. I know that there's more to you and I know other people are working against you and I know other people are conspiring and they don't like what you have to say, but I'm connected with something in you. I've been looking for something my whole life and I'm starting to feel it when I'm around you. I've been looking for something my whole life and I'm starting to see what I've been looking for anytime I'm in your presence. And he's just, he's just making this connection with Jesus that there's something on the inside of me that wants to be near you. I can't explain it. I don't really understand it. I, it doesn't really line up with uh, what I thought our agenda was supposed to be, but I just want to be in your presence. Does anybody ever feel that way? Do you ever just feel like, look, I may not be able to explain it all. I may not be able to tell you everything uh, that the Bible says, uh, but I found something that speaks to me. I found something that reaches down in the depths of my soul and lets me know that I finally found my way home. And so I'm learning more and I'm growing more and I'm desiring more. And I don't care what I have to do. I just want more of Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. He wasn't, he wasn't prideful and he wasn't pushing an agenda. He was inquisitive and eager to learn from Jesus when he had came to him that night. We know this because Jesus doesn't scold him or ignore him or speak doesn't call him a hypocrite. He doesn't say some of the things that he says to the Pharisees at other times in the Bible. He uses this conversation with Nicodemus to share an eternal salvation truth. He says in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, Jesus answered and said to him, Verily, verily, I'm going to say something to you, Nicodemus. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is a religious, spiritual, and a, a smart man, a wise man. But Jesus says to him that unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says unto them, how can a man be born when he is old? It's a logical question. You know, if you've, you've never heard the term born again before. Must be born again, or you cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. Don't, that, don't let that blow your mind. Don't, don't get uh, over uh, uh, worked on that. He said it's, it's not quite as hard maybe as you're thinking it's going to be. You must be born again because if you don't, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. And so you got to be born of the water and you got to be born of the spirit. And we know that born of the water is the baptism that must come into our lives. Then I must be as was declared in Acts 2. Amen. I must repent of my sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of my sins. I must go down into that watery grave just like Jesus went down into that tomb and I must be buried with him the Bible declares in baptism in his name and when I come up out of the water oh we've been doing it a lot around here lately when we come up out of the water I'm a new man in Christ Jesus. The old man is gone. I've got a new thing I've been cleansed. I've been purified. My sins have been remitted. 
Oh, hallelujah. I'll just go ahead and tell you right now, if you've never been baptized, completely immersed in the water in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, as the only way that the Bible ever showed anyone to be baptized. Uh, we got a baptismal tank right here. We got towels. We got clothes. We got robes. Uh, you can be, hallelujah, baptized before you leave this place today, and you can walk out of here completely transformed uh, than the way you walked in. Uh, you can walk out of this place new. Oh, if you've been baptized in Jesus' name, immersed in the water, and you're thankful for it, would you shout unto God and clap your hands unto Jesus? Hallelujah. He says you have to be born of the water, but he says you also must be born of the Spirit. Hallelujah. We must receive it. It's also as told in Acts 2 when the church is being born. When Jesus' idea of a church is being birthed in the book of Acts, he says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And the reason is simple. The reason's very simple, Nicodemus. You don't, don't have to overthink it. That which is born of flesh is not spirit. And can never be. Flesh, what is born of flesh, will always be flesh. Oh, hallelujah. But he says that which is born of spirit. Now that, that's spirit. God, the Bible says, is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Oh, hallelujah. And he says, so that which is flesh is flesh, and it cannot involve itself. It cannot do that which the Spirit is, but to engage in spiritual things, we need the Spirit of God. Jesus then shines a light on a trap that people still fall into today. In John chapter 3, 9 through 11, still speaking with Nicodemus, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. Jesus says, uh, we know what we're talking about, amen, the things that we've seen and done, and yet you still won't believe. Uh, you've heard our words. Uh, you've heard the testimony. You've seen the miraculous. Uh, you've witnessed what was going on, uh, but yet you still won't believe it because you're a master in Israel. Surely you couldn't be wrong. Surely everything that you think is right Surely there can't be some other thought process or maybe some other thing that we're missing out on. Surely there isn't a truth that you don't already know. Said you're a master in Israel and right now that's working against you, Nicodemus. Because I'm speaking words into your ears and you're not really hearing it and I'm doing miracles all over the place and you're looking at it from the wrong perspective and you're missing out on what I'm trying to do. He says in John 3 and 12, if I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And we still see this today. 
We still see this in our world to today. In fact, Jesus goes on to speak, and we can begin to see just how little we know. He just got done talking about an action that needed to be taken, didn't he? You must be born again of the water and of the Spirit. He just got done talking about something you have to do, a step of faith you have to take, a belief that has to become something that you act upon in your life. He just got done saying that. And then just a few verses later, just a few verses later, we get John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And many today have taken this one verse to mean that that's all we have to do is believe in Jesus and we're automatically saved for eternity. Totally negating the important steps that Jesus has just said leading up to John 3.16. Negating the words coming out of the same person's mouth. It doesn't cut from there and go across the street and somebody's creating a religion and they say that part and then cut back. It's the same man, Christ Jesus, using his same mouth and his same breath to say the same words that talks about being you must be born again of the water and of the spirit or you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's the same one that tells us that God so loved the world that whoever believeth in him should not perish. And people use 3.16, but they negate everything before it, and it proves the point that Christ was trying to make about the Pharisees. It proves the point. What people do today proves the point of what Jesus was saying that was causing Nicodemus to struggle with his belief. Before burial, Christ had to die. Before resurrection, Christ had to be buried. There are too many people today that want resurrection without death or burial. They want the resurrection. They want that. They want the miraculous uh, 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 new life. They want all of that. But they don't want the death and they don't want the burial. But you're in an apostolic Pentecostal church today and we believe what the Bible declares to be. If you want to get the resurrection, there's going to have to be a death. I'm going to have to come, hallelujah, to the cross and be crucified with Christ. I'm going to have to repent of my sins and be buried with him in baptism that I might be able to resurrect the newness of life, our death is true repentance and it is acknowledging that we are sinners in need of forgiveness and our burial is baptism. For what shall we say then, Romans 6? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us who are baptized are as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. 
Colossians 2, 12 through 13, we are buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. How incredibly amazing is this? Twelve close disciples and friends and family are not handling the body of Christ. They're not the ones taking him down. They're not the ones dealing with his body or carrying him to the tomb. Instead, we have two men, one of the Sanhedrin and one of a Pharisee, meeting together at the foot of the cross, wanting to now publicly declare their love, unafraid of what the crowd might see. One did it privately. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, but he's a disciple, but he does it privately because of the fear of them. Another is a member of the Pharisees who has to come to Jesus by night because he's not ready to really declare who he is. But on this day, when they see him die on the cross, they step out from the group. They step out from the crowd, and they're not afraid or ashamed to beg the body of Jesus, of Pilate, and they're not afraid or ashamed to be the ones who handle the body of Christ no hiding in the shadows no more more worry about what others might think of them they publicly express their love John 19 39 through 40 and there also came Nicodemus which at first came to Jesus by night he had the myrrh in the aloe about a hundred pound weight then took they the body of Jesus, wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Nicodemus came to the cross bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. It says 100 pounds. This was a vast quantity. It reminds the reader of the myrrh and the aloes of the royal bridegroom of the church in Psalm 45, of the frankincense and myrrh brought by the wise men of the east, of the lavish gift of Mary used to anoint Christ. The myrrh, the myrrh aloes were pounded and mixed for the purpose of resisting the decomposition of death. The method was entirely to cover the body with its pungent and purifying powder and then to swathe the whole body with the grave clothes that were also enriched with the aloes and the myrrh. That was the process. This was a lavish gift of love that Joseph and Nicodemus are doing. It is a care shown for the dead like few common men would ever receive. His body is laid in the tomb of the wealthy. Because it was carved out of the stone. That was not just something everyone had. It was already pre-prepared. It was for Joseph and his family, his children, possibly even of his grandchildren. It was an already purchased and pre-prepared place. A rock, a desirous place. These men wanted the best for Jesus. Which also suggests that they weren't convinced this was going to be temporary. The amount of love, the lavishness that they put upon him, the care, the placement, the rolling of the stone, it lets us know they loved him. 
It also lets us know that they weren't expecting to see him again. Hmm. And so we find that no one is really left proclaiming the resurrection. Nobody's left. They place the stone in front of the opening and they depart, having done all they could to this man that they loved. These two men specifically chosen by God, specifically positioned for the task. Like us, they meet at the foot of the cross. We all meet at the foot of the cross. No one goes into the Father except by me, Jesus said. He's speaking of the cross. Everybody has to meet at the foot of the cross. If our pride keeps us away from it, then we're not going to see the kingdom of God. If our arrogance keeps us away from it, then we're not going to see the kingdom of God. And if our ignorance keeps us away from it, we're not going to see the kingdom of God. But every person must come to the foot of the cross. And they meet together there at the foot of the cross. They acknowledge their love of Christ no matter what the cost. They weren't afraid. They weren't ashamed anymore. You can't come to the cross and hide your face. You can't come to the cross and try to cover up who you are because when you come to the cross, you're exposed. When you come to the cross, everything is illuminated. When you're at the foot of the cross, nothing is hidden anymore because it's at the foot of the cross that I acknowledge I am a sinner in need of salvation, that I have no righteousness, uh, but I have a righteous God that may be able to help me, that I need forgiveness, that I need salvation, and I cannot do it on my own if you're here today and you think you could do it on your own you go ahead and try and I hope you try real hard real fast so that you can learn that you cannot do it on your own and maybe you'll have time to come running back to Jesus and running back to the cross and say forgive me for thinking I had it all figured out but I need the cross like so many they gave lavishly and unselfishly knowing that it was Little in comparison to what he had just given. There's nothing that you're going to give God today that even comes close to touching what he gives and has given for us. Whatever it is you're holding on to that's holding you back, whatever it is that you just don't want to let go of because you're just not sure it's worth it to commit to that level. I'm not sure it's worth it to really go all in like that. I don't mind being on the fringes. I don't mind being just kind of out in the crowd, but I don't really think I want to go all in whatever it is. You need to make sure that you understand. Uh, you're, not comparis- you're not comparing yourselves to the people around you. You're comparing yourselves to what Jesus just did on the cross. You're comparing yourself to the one who gave himself, uh, and he shut his mouth uh, like a lamb before the slaughter. He could have called the thousands of angels. He could have wiped them all out. He could have turned the, tev- the, the table right there, but instead... Uh, He stands there humbly and he lets them whip his back and spikes to his hands and a crown of thorns upon his head. Hallelujah. And it says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I'm telling you right now, ain't nothing you're going to sacrifice for Jesus that even comes close to what he's already sacrificed for us. 
Oh, hallelujah. They lived and worked amongst unbelievers and hypocrites. They loved Christ in the midst of a culture that killed Christ. And when their moment came, they didn't let Christ down. They were the only ones who could do what needed to be done, and they did it. So I ask us today, what is our position and place in this life? And what world, what world do we live and work in? And can, can we live for Jesus amongst people that hate him? And are we available when it's time for us to do our part? Are we ready to step up when it's time for us to step up? And when he says, all right, it's your turn. I need you to do this. I need you to speak. I need you to act. I need you to believe that we just melt back into the shadows and hide behind the rocks. Or do we have enough faith and belief to step out and declare? And while there were not many believers left who were still thinking about resurrection, while Mary was weeping and the disciples were hiding, and while Nicodemus and Joseph were preparing the body and closing the tomb, it is interesting as I come to a close today, it is interesting that we acknowledge the actions of the unbelievers. And while there are seemingly no believers left who literally heard him say things like, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up again. While there are seemingly no believers left who actually heard him with his mouth say that it's, you know, I'm going to have to go away. It's going to be sorrowful for you, but don't worry about it. It's, I got a plan. There seems to be no believers left who, who actually heard those things, but then we must acknowledge the actions of the unbelievers in Matthew 27. Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver, <laughs> they are so conflicted in this moment. They're so conflicted. They really want to believe that he was a deceiver. They really want to believe he was a liar. They really want to believe he was manipulating everybody. But here they find themselves before Pilate saying, Now, uh, we know he's dead and we know he's in the tomb, but we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive that after three days I will rise again. So, Pilate, if you wouldn't mind, could you just make a command? Pilate says, one of the highest authorities in the land. They're asking one of the highest authorities in the land to speak and make a command, which is one of the highest acts of authority that he can do for a man that they thought was just a deceiver who's dead. Would you make a command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure unto the third day? That's interesting. They even stick to the timeline. He said, three days, I'll rise up again. They didn't say, well, can we do it for one or two or five or ten? They said, uh, the three, we need to make sure that they're, they're at least there for three. Lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Ooh. Oh, they're telling themselves a little bit there. 
We may have made a mistake. We may have made an error. And we don't want the last error or another thing to happen that's even going to be worse than what's already happened. The last error might not be worse than the first pilot said to them, you have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Ye have a watch. That means you have a Roman guard. You have a sentry. You have a group of soldiers at your disposal. Go ahead. The Roman guard was a 16-man unit that was governed by very strict rules. Each member was responsible for six square feet of space. They stood in that formation. The guard members could not sit down or lean against anything while they were on duty. If a guard member fell asleep, he was beaten and burned with his clothes on. But he was not the only one executed. The entire 16-man guard unit was executed if only one member fell asleep on the job. They were trained. <laughs> they were trained soldiers. A large amount of them standing there with their armor and their weaponry guarding the tomb of supposedly a dead man. In an odd twist, the believers, hear me now, the believers were forgetting what Jesus had said, and thus they were afraid. And the non-believers were remembering what Jesus said, and they were afraid. Believers were acting like they didn't expect anything to happen, and non-believers were acting like they fully expected something to happen. So my question as I come to a close is what about us today? What are we expecting to happen? What are you expecting out of Jesus when you came here today? What were you thinking was going to happen? Did you think you were just going to come into this church on the hill, hear a little music, say a little prayer, say where's lunch? expecting to come into place that was more about the just the camaraderie and the, hey how you doing how you doing grab a cup of coffee hear a cute little sermon and then walk out the door or did you show up expecting something to happen today did you show up expecting God to be alive and present and powerful? Did you, did you show up expecting that when the music started to play that something was going to come into the room and God was going to respond to the praises of his people? Were you expecting people to step out of their row and walk up to the front and throw their hands in the air and say, I need a healing today. I need a miracle today. I walked in. I walked in not feeling well. I walked in discouraged, but I know there's a living God in this house. I know there's a resurrection Savior in this place and so I've shown up expecting something to happen. I came in one way but I fully expect to walk out another way because there's a God who's alive. Let's all stand together. So what about you sir, ma'am? What about you? What, are you? what are you expecting to happen now? Because the front of this building 
this sanctuary, this place that we're having church today. The front is intentionally left open because we respond to God. Because I don't want to just walk in and feel some goosebumps and hear, hear some stuff and then walk out. I, I, want to, I want to let God really have His way in me. I want Him to speak to me. I want Him to work in me. I want Him to challenge and change me. I want to go to the foot of the cross. I want to go to the foot of the cross and I want and I need that blood that shed on Calvary I need it to I need it to come into my life and forgive me maybe I maybe you're thinking about getting baptized before you leave today maybe maybe we just need to repent for a little bit or maybe we want to repent worship God let God begin to fill us what are you expecting to happen now? Because I'm telling you this, he is ready to resurrect our lives today. He's ready. He's ready. And just because, just in case anybody's worried about it, there ain't a devil in hell that can stop it. There ain't an enemy of your soul that can stop it from happening. The devil may think he's got you completely blocked out and there's no way you can get to Jesus, uh, but I'm here to tell you that they can't, they can't do nothing against you, sir. They can't even cause you to hesitate for a second if it's your will to get to the foot of the cross. Uh, you will not have anything that will stand in your way. He's ready to resurrect our lives today. Would you raise a hand or two in the air and then begin to open your mouth and talk to Jesus and begin to pray right now? You don't have to quote some memorized prayer. You don't have to say fancy words. The Lord God is in this place right now and he hears the cry of your heart. Thank you for listening to our podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this message. Remember, if you would like to find out more information about our church or to contact us, please go online at connectpointupc.com. And also don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app so you will be automatically notified of new episodes. Thank you and we hope you have a great week.